is what the war in Vietnam is all about. Communism was on the march. I knew that when I went to Vietnam, I was going to be killed. Never have men served with greater devotion. Explain Vietnam. I can't do it. This is Veterans Voices, Memories and Stories of Minnesota's Vietnam Veterans. I'm Kevin Berger. The veteran we're going to hear from is truly a warrior. That's part of the culture uh, that he was raised in. He's a Native American officer. My name is Trudell Henry Guru Jr., I enlisted in, on June 30, 1966. I served in Vietnam with the 173rd Airborne Brigade. I was wounded and spent 14 months in the hospital. And I was medically retired on August 17 of 1970. And I was the youngest officer in the 8th Division. And, and I, was an Indi- I am an Indian. Once I was commissioned, I became this very unusual thing. You don't you, you don't see very many Indian officers. Do you think being raised as a Native person with all the honor that is associated with with being in the military, do you think that influenced you? Oh yes, very much. I had about a dozen cousins in Vietnam. It's just what we do. That value of service, I think, really influenced Trudell uh, throughout his whole lifetime. He was talking about his cousins who came home from the war and how they were regarded. And in the Vietnam era, I learned that there was a very high number of uh, Native American people who volunteered, who enlisted to serve. It's just kind of a cultural imperative for them. Uh, he was, Trudell was raised um, on the Rosebud Reservation out in South Dakota and is actually descended from that tribe's last tribal chief, Spotted Tail. But back to why you wanted to go. I had to measure up. That simple. We Lakota, it is a, a cultural ethic. You know, we still have a warrior ethic. But I knew that when I went to Vietnam, I was going to be killed. The night before I left the reservation, I had been at one aunt's house, and I, about 2 or 3 o'clock, I said, I'm going to go see my Aunt Christine, who lived across the valley. Straight line distance, maybe 8 miles, but you, know, you had to go about 30 to get there. And I got in my car, which is a 1964 Triumph Spitfire. It's November, and it's cold. And it wouldn't start. My aunt lived at the end of the, at the end of the town, you know, overlooking the, the canyon. And so I, I decided I would jumpstart it, pushed it down, and chugged all the way down and didn't go. And I heard this woman crying. And she was crying as if something awful had happened. And I thought, boy, something really bad must have happened because I could, I could hear her out here. And it was, uh, there were some houses right near there. Um, I got out, unlatched the hood, wiggled the wires, and kicked all the tires. And I, all of a sudden, I realized that woman was behind me and down in the creek. It's a spirit. And, uh, she's a harbinger, uh, harbinger of death. But the hospital was right near there, and she would always go crying through the valley and, and end up in the next room from whoever was going to die. And I realized, oh, boy. I accepted the fact that I was going to be—I was going to die. Jumped in my car, and I was a pure 
adrenaline that got it started, I drove right back up to my aunt's house and I knocked on the door and I said, can I stay here? She had asked me to already anyway. Uh, but it scared me so bad I didn't think about it. I didn't tell anybody about, about it. I didn't think about it. I think that preyed on Chudelguru's mind quite a bit, this premonition. Even though when he got to Vietnam, he said he had the ability to shut up and listen, and that served him well. Uh, his superiors looked after him, and his troops looked up to him. And, and so everybody knew that there was this boy Indian lieutenant, and um, I had the good fortune to keep my mouth shut. And I'd tell my sergeants, because I got, I got assigned to all these things, I'd tell my sergeants, look, I don't know what I'm doing. You, know, you do, do what you're doing and tell me what you're doing. So when the captain asks me what's going on, I'll, have, I'll be able to say something. Those airborne sergeants, at least the ones I was with, were, were the, mo the, the best people I've known, and they, they took care of me. They trained me. They kept my ass out of trouble because uh, I had a tendency to get there. The, uh, in fact, when the sergeant major of the battalion was leaving, he called me over and he talked to me like his son. And uh, when I was leaving, the, my first sergeant came down and we were sitting on the steps of the, the caserne, and he did the same thing to me. He said, watch out for this, watch out for that. But no one could have told him what to watch out for. What happened the day he met the Viet Cong, the day his premonition really almost came true. We got word that there was going to be a VC district chiefs meeting in this little village called Kim Jiao, which is right on the South China Sea, and there's a big pond, big pond behind it. So we, we came in at night, we surrounded the place, and in the morning, the, we, we took all of the, the, the men, the boys above probably 11, took them out to the beach, made a big grid, and set them in, in so that they couldn't talk together, and we had guards on them. Then they flew in what are called the white mice. And the white mice are, they're uh, police officers. They call them white mice because they were, they wore uh, white helmets. They they beat up this little girl. It, was, it turns out to be the, the chief's uh, little sister. And I mean, they beat her. I was, I was 150 feet away, and I could hear. I could hear that. And they would yell at her. She'd yell back, and then they'd go bap bap bap. And they, they beat her for probably 15 or 20 minutes, and, and I, I could hear it all the time. And she finally broke down, and she told them where her brother was, directly under their hut. They had a tunnel there. So our guys broke into it, had a little firefight, killed one or two of them. They went all the way back to the end of the tunnel, and our, our, some of our guys had gotten to their munitions. And this hole that they had dug was about eight, ten feet across. But didn't have my radio. We left it over at this little temple. And so I, I was standing right beside where this stuff was piling up. And there was blocks of C4, grenades, ammo. And I sent uh, the recon sergeant back to, ch to check in on the radio net. 
and I realized I didn't, I didn't trust him. He wasn't very good. So I sent my brand new RTO. He had been with me for 10 days. And he was really, he wanted to know, he wanted to learn. So I sent him to check on the recon sergeant. And then I thought to myself a couple of minutes later, I thought, geez, what am I doing? I got, got these guys who, are, who, who don't have the experience and I'm, I'm asking them to do something. So I, I turned away. I stepped away, had my 16 down here in my left arm and turned away like this. And I just looked down and I saw this grenade coming up. Looked like one of our, what we call M26 grenades, except it was twice as big and it had the wrong colors. And I couldn't read the writing. I could see the writing, but I couldn't read it. It was probably Cyrillic. And so I looked down like that and, and then it, it just flashed. I, hear, I heard nothing, I felt nothing, I just flashed. And I knew that I was dead. I knew that that woman was right. What were your injuries? Literally, I had the shit shot out of me. I had a colostomy for 10 months and an ileostomy for about four or five months. My four, four fingers on my left hand, nerve damage on my right hand, almost lost my lower left leg. I was blinded. I was deafened for a while. Um, the only thing that wasn't hit on me was my right leg. I spent um, a total of 14 months in hospitals, in a, week in, a week in Vietnam, a week in Japan, and uh, the rest of the time in uh, Lebanon Army Hospital in San Francisco. It was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. It made me who I am. I try to be a good person. I try not to be a bad person. Uh, it taught me some taught me some major, major lessons. Um, there are things that I can't do now, but I don't feel handicapped. Uh, it's just a penance. I didn't do a hell of a lot of sinning, but I guess you know sometimes uh, you really have to do a lot of penance for some things. My wife doesn't believe me, but even knowing what would happen, I would do it again. I believe that that's what this country is worth. I'm one of those guys, those odd guys, who thinks that Vietnam was, was correct. I think that it, it was necessary. Even though we did not militarily win the war, we have won the peace. After I got back from, from Vietnam, when I got home onto the reservation, I was, was honored. I was given this big ceremony called the Waktegli, which means I have killed and I have come home. It didn't, it didn't justify anything. I didn't have anything to be angry about, but it made me feel good. Trudel Guru has stayed connected with his heritage. He served as a tribal court judge. Uh, he went on to graduate from Dartmouth in 1974. Then he went to law school at Notre Dame and practiced law in Minnesota, including for the Legal Rights Center in Minneapolis.
on the next episode, a vet who describes what it was like to have PTSD before PTSD had a name. In the back stairs of his huge window that was about a story and a half. And as I was going up the first landing, the window exploded. And the next thing I knew, I was about where the Lafayette Bridge was running. And I don't know what happened in between. This is Kevin Berger for Veterans Voices Vietnam. Veterans Voices Vietnam is produced by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, in partnership with the Minnesota Humanities Center and support from the state of Minnesota. Online at ampers.org.